Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the 1099 for the week of July 4th, 2016. I'm your host, as always, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is a returning guest, the co-founder and president of Oddworld and Heavens, Lauren Lanning. Lauren, thank you so much for coming back. Hey, thanks for having me on, Josiah. It's great to be here. Absolutely. I mean, how, how are you Anything doing? for Jacksonville. <laughs> Representing Florida <laughs> over here. We're in two very hot states. It's actually currently 100 degrees out right now, so it's been Is a it really? nightmare. I just got What's... back from uh, Las Vegas, which was like 110 all week, uh, and then I come right back to Florida, which has been 100, so I feel like I am doing life wrong right now. Like, I really need to... <laughs> like figure out where I should actually live. What was the uh, what was the humidity in Florida? What do you live? <sighs> it's I, I'm ninety percent. I would say that's accurate. I, it, it feels like I'm swimming when I am walking out. Yeah, is where I'm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's brutal, man. Florida going is outside brutal. is a mistake. Like I usually work from home, and today I was in the office, and as soon as I walked outside, I'm like, no, this is this is a bad idea. I should not be doing this. <laughs> I mean, you just got back from E3. How'd the show go? Yeah, uh, the show went great. You know, we weren't really uh, showing there or anything. Uh, we, well, we were showing very, very privately, just the partners and stuff like that, but not publicly. And uh, but it was great. You know, it's always great to see the uh, what the latest stuff is. And that's, a, you know, aside from GDC, that's the that's the place that you get a lot. You get to see a lot. Right. Yeah. And uh, and there was a lot of things to see. So, you know, some of that we can chat on, but also kind of intimidating, man. I mean, the uh, the level of graphics quality going on out there in the new in the new AAA games it's like you got to be kidding me yeah. i mean it's just it's just sick man it's like you know you're really approaching uh what was that what was the game i was looking at it was uh days end i think that's what it's called it's days end uh, is it Jack- days gone is it that playstation days gone. Days that's gone. It. yeah i'm really terrible with names but uh <laughs> but when you watch that right and you watch the the uh for honor did you see that yeah the ubisoft like war game. yeah the open the opening cinematic where the, like you know armageddon's unfolding and yeah forests are falling into crevices i mean it's just so epic right it's like damn man. and it's not just the look it's the fact that especially with days gone just the number of things that are happening on screen at that scale at that fidelity it's it's just uh it, it's it's, it's really astounding yeah you watch it over and over and you're like oh my god man we're in deep deep trouble you know intimidating <laughs> graphics here make no mistake <laughs> it's not it's not an easy uh it's not an easy thing to uh when you when you look at you know as indie guys this is this is basically what's going to be grabbing a lot of attention uh and you know against your release dates things things like that you i mean you're at a different price point a slightly different audience but when something's really grand and really magnificent i mean it steals a lot of oxygen from the you know from from it can potentially steal a lot of a lot of air from your title a lot yeah. of wind at the sales. And uh, so it's, it's like I said, it's intimidating. You know, I admit it. I'm like, wow, look at these guys. Look what they're doing. And it was a little bit more of a AAA focused show this year. You think about that Sony press conference, the, you know, the PlayStation mm-hmm. showcase was kind of just AAA game after AAA game where in 2013 when you were on stage, it was kind of this indie showcase of, you know, here's all these small games coming to PlayStation 4. It seemed to a certain extent like a shift. Yeah, you know, I think that's true, you know, and, and again, like I'm going to comment based on my assumptions, right? Not necessarily mm-hmm. insider information or something, but uh, that's that's what I saw. And I think the reasons are uh, we have a couple of reasons. One, uh, let's say when we were looking at the indie showcase, what was that, 2013? Yeah, 2013. Now we're in 2016, right? So three years ago, there was yet to be a winner and there was yet to be a release of the new consoles, right? And so a big thing was indie self-publishing. And so the gamers had a lot of concern in this area and the game makers had particularly indie devs that were 
that had the possibility of self-publishing. This is a big concern. And, uh, and I think that was a huge driving factor that Sony predicted right for this console generation. And uh, the management at Microsoft at the time predicted wrong. Mm-hmm. So Microsoft was trying to go forward with, with uh, basically legacy policies that weren't at all indie uh, friendly, really, you know. And then uh, Sony saw the writing on the wall and they were like, this is going to be really important, self-publishing, more self-publishing, ease of use of self-publishing, ease of use of selling, uh, sh- people sharing games. You know, a lot of these different concepts that they predicted correct and, and Microsoft had a hard time with, sort of a slow start with. And... Uh, and now that battle is won, right? PlayStation, I think the number is PlayStation 40 million install base, Xbox One 30. So it's it's uh, so one is in the lead, but it's you know both have a pretty good market share, and um, and so the and what happened since that time, you know, uh, in uh, Microsoft's been been they had complete changes of policies, they had changes in management. Now you've got more what I would call developer friendly management. And indie-friendly management, uh, and so they really uh, turned, you know, adjusted, uh, in, in my opinion, properly for the better of everyone, the players and developers and themselves. They pivoted, they adjusted, and then they became indie-friendly. Right now, like for instance, Steam was always indie-friendly. Uh, PlayStation was becoming indie-friendly, and for this generation, they were really looking at indie-friendly. Now, I was self-publishing. We were Oddworld was self-publishing on. On PlayStation already, but we weren't on Xbox 360 because of the policies. And so that stuff has shaken out since 2013. And so now in the are you going to have indie friendly self-publishing policies to the developers means can, can we have a better chance at like, you know, being in charge of our own destiny? Uh, making our own money and for the gamer they were like do we get a wider selection of games that we can buy at cheaper prices? Right? It's yeah. really kind of that simple, right? And most gamers, they're going to buy their AAA product at $60, you know, waiting for Call of Duty or some big, you know, AAA IP. Uh, and then they're going to they're gonna, uh, spend less on indie games that they expect to be more innovative, that they expect to be uh, different and have a different sort of uh, almost, you know, startup type of passion behind it where where more experimentations are taking place, you know, more weird types of games, more interesting experiments at lower price. You can't you really can't go out and try and take a big experiment at a hundred million dollar budget, right? Because you know no one wants to risk that much money. But at two million dollars maybe you can. Particularly at five hundred thousand dollars, maybe that's a safer bet for you to distinguish yourself in the marketplace, to stand out. So all of that has shaken out to where now we have pretty much across the board uh, pretty friendly indie policies and friendly promotions of indie games if it's really high quality. Games are stratif- stratified so much differently than they used to be. I used to you used to kind of think of like there's the AAA and then there was kind of this middle ground during the PS2 era where you'd get a lot of maybe a little bit similar shooters, third-person stuff. THQ kind of dominated that space, and then that indie came in, mm-hmm. and now indie games almost have their own different classifications where there's the big blockbuster. I think of a Supergiant Games, Bastion Transistor as like the big budget indie game, and then there's even like the smaller ones that like you said, which are 500,000 and below that can take these risks and where you see that creativity, where you see ideas that maybe even get used in bigger games are these mm-hmm. smaller indie games like Super Hot. Super Hot had that interesting idea where when you move, it moves with you, and you stop, it stops. And now there's other games kind of borrowing that. And I don't think any large publisher like an Activision would take a chance on something like Super Hot. 
or if they did, it would have to be in like an indie branding. Yes. You know, so so it's it's basically a different product line, a different part of their big machine operating to make it happen. You know, like this was supposed to be what uh, back in the day, what let's say uh, EA Partners mm-hmm. was supposed to be. It was like, well, we're supposed to be friendlier. Uh, we're not as as uh, as Google would say, we're not as evil as the regular <laughs> course of business to independent developers. So we're going to create this brand, right? Which ultimately changed in management, made that brand that arm exactly the same as the nasty arm for the big AAAs, which led to you know hostile acquisitions, all kinds of bullshit in the industry. You know, history legacy. Yeah. I don't want to complain about anyone specific. It's not what it's about, but. Uh, it's not what this conversation is about, right? <laughs> but uh, me dragging up baggage is not. No one cares. But uh, so what you have is you had people and you're going to see more of it, right? Like right now you're seeing companies like Telltale, 2K, uh, and uh, uh, some others, uh, Namco, et cetera, tr- uh, picking up indie brands and then helping like co-publish indie brands. So this is a way at a low price for them to take more experimentation, uh, more experimental type of more experimental and at the same time risky types of content to uh, to feel out the marketplace, find if there's really an audience there at a much lower price point. But it's it's not necessarily the same machine that's moving, you know, Grand Theft Auto or moving, uh, you know, Call of Duty, right? If you're at, at Activision or something. So the uh, the the machine, like someone has to be set up where they're they're ready to go, you know, multi-platform, all the retail outlets. Those people are used to certain patterns, the people that are, let's just call it, a part of that machine to market for a big publisher. And if you're going to do like, well, we're going to support some indie guys here. We're going to start, maybe we'll do physical distribution for the indies, but uh, the indie itself will do digital distribution, you know, because they've already got their own stores. They've already, you know, been blazing that. Like for us, for example, you know, we left a lot of money sitting on the table last time by not having a physical distribution really and yeah we chose not to because we just go we don't know is it does that mean we're going to be in discs again does that mean uh we we're going to be watching uh we're going to see GameStop selling our game used and then we can't sell any new ones because they're, they're just recycling the used games because it's more profitable for them those all, all these issues are out there at retail and so we just chose not to do it and uh and also quite frankly you know we weren't having offers that were like look this is such a hot game. We're going to we're going to really we're going to commit. We're going to make a commitment to make this work instead. Uh, typical terms f- from uh, different people looking at the indie space would, would uh, you know, unless you had something that just looked amazingly sensational like uh, uh, No Man's Sky. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, if you had something like the promise of No Man's Sky, then people would really be stepping up with some cold cash and some big commitments because because the potential is huge. Right. But if you got, you know, a story game that's uh, that's going to get X number of hours of play, people will really love it. Uh, but it's not going to be, you know, people are not going to be playing it in two years from now and still doing as much Twitch streams and things like that then you're not going to have as much interest, right? So for us, uh, you know, people know we're going to sell units. They know we were doing fine online alone, um, but they still weren't weren't giving us terms that we found enticing. Instead, we saw, well, you get to make a lot of money and you're not really compensating us. And the fact is, I mean, you're not, if, this, if you paid for the title, it would be in completely different types of terms than the terms you're offering us. And we paid for the title. Mm-hmm. 
So you know what? We just don't feel like giving our wares away. We just don't feel like having the people that used to take the biggest gouge out of the developer now wanting the content for free and still wanting to recoup their manufacturing and their marketing before you get paid. But they're taking millions of dollars of content, right? So you go, it just doesn't make sense. We don't want to play. We'll re- we'd rather not than, than be taken advantage of, really. Yeah. You know, because if, if you want to, hey, you got a great $5 million piece of content. Why don't you let me distribute it and we'll split it 50-50 after I recoup my licensing fees, after I recoup my manufacturing fees, after I recoup my marketing fees, then we'll split it 50-50. You're like, you know, that's funny because I remember when you guys used to pay for the content, it was completely different terms. And now <laughs> that you're not, you, you don't want to have to compensate any of that? Bullshit. So so we went out there and, uh, you know, including the free month on uh, the, the, the plus month that we were bought out for a month. Um, you know, we moved over three and a half million units. I'm fascinated by PlayStation Plus because that's something that I, I don't get to talk to a lot of people who have put their game up for not for free because you still have to have the subscription. But technically, think of it like an OEM, okay. meaning uh, Sony makes you an offer and they said, look, we'd like to offer you as part of Plus. Right. Mm. And uh, the way Plus works, obviously, is subscription to the customer to the game player and uh but for you they do a buyout so they're like look you know we maybe we'll move this many units but for you think of it like an oem think of it like it it used to be what goes in the box if you were buying a new playstation and there's three games inside that's oem right okay yeah and uh so you would have buyouts like if you remember miss they were going 10 million units sold but most of them were oem so they weren't getting full price on the unit you know, it didn't necessarily mean as much money as it sounded like to the developer, but the units were high and people liked the game. So you might say, well, rather than making $10 a unit, we might be making a dollar a unit, but we're going to get all this free promotional. So now a hardware company, a PC, GPS company, you know, GPU company might be promoting it. Uh, a console company might be promoting it. Um, a CD-ROM company, if you go back to MIST, the CD-ROM manufacturers were trying to get good content that they could say, hey, buy the CD and you get this game, right? So a lot of things get, get moved. A lot of numbers get moved as OEM. But the, to the developer, they're not full price. And that's just life. You know, that's not, I'm not saying it's a raw deal. It actually can be a great deal. So for us, uh, we didn't have a new title, which is, uh, you know, uh, New and Tasty was our freshest title. To, to come down the marketplace in a while. You know, the others were more re- true, true, you know, HD upgrade or something, um, or just bringing a title to a new platform. But new and tasty was like, that was, this is really, a, uh, we rebuilt the game with 21st century technology, but we really did it from the ground up. You know, there was no yeah. cheese in it and just switching texture maps. I mean, we really built a new game, but it was built on the old game. Uh, the old games, you know, screen by screen, you can almost see the old game, even though it's all new. Uh, point being, we didn't have a track record on Plus to know exactly what our value should be. So we, we made a deal, and, and we feel good about you know that deal in hindsight. But you know, a couple, admittedly, a couple million units were moved through that deal. So uh, you know, price point, we weren't making the same per unit as much as we're selling you know, straight off the store at physical price. But uh, you do it. You do it for marketing exposure. You do it to make it easy for people who aren't familiar with your brand to get familiar with your brand. You know, like Oddworld's not the game. Case in point, Oddworld's the type of game like you, you might not be shopping for that kind of game next month. You know, someone will be shopping for shooters next month. They yeah. will be shopping for sh- 
shooter, uh, uh, <coughs> excuse me, racing games next month. They will be shooting, aiming, and planning to buy um, uh, the latest uh, sports game of soccer or, or football next month. You know, basketball. They they already have a pattern. They know they're going to buy a certain game. When you're in a a, a less uh, mainstream genre, you know, and I would classify Oddworld in some more uh, of a boutique type of product. I mean, I think it can have huge sales, mm-hmm. but it needs to be promoted to get huge sales. And the reason is because you don't already have it in your mind. I'm going to go buy a game like Oddworld next month, right? Yeah. I mean, you'd, you'd have to be aware of it. You'd be like, whoa, I wasn't expecting to buy a game like Oddworld next month. You know, you're not looking for um, Firewatch. It just comes onto your radar and you're like, whoa, that looks interesting. But you weren't planning on buying a Firewatch-like game next year. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, so when you get to uh, you know, consumer player uh, purchase patterns, how they anticipate spending their money, uh, you need promotions. So those OEM-type deals or free plus months to the customer is a way to get more people committed to maybe your brand. And then maybe you can make up for it next time. You know, you go, okay, now we have a track record on plus. Now we have this. Now we have that. And uh, and I'm not sure that we'll be on plus in the next game. There has to be it has to be fascinating to kind of see what putting New and Tasty on plus does do for Soulstorm. Because like you said, Oddworld is a game that maybe you're not always looking for from month to month. But just about everyone who has plus will just yeah. immediately download the new stuff no matter what. They're just going to have it on their console no matter what. And you're exposing way more people than you could have otherwise to this thing. So do you think this will have a significant sales impact on Soulstorm when it comes out, even if it doesn't come yeah, out on I Plus? Yeah, I do. I'm thinking, you know, I'm actually talking to Sony about how do we notify the audience that it might not be on Plus at all, ever. Yeah. Or at least for 24 months or something. That has to be you a know? challenge, because some people wait. Some people see an indie yeah. game and say, I'll, I'll get that when it's free. Well, and so, you know, so there's different types of people, right? You have what I call your Walmart shopper. Mm. And your Walmart shopper is the one who bought the game and then they saw it was on plus three months later, and then they feel ripped off because someone else, they could have gotten the game cheaper. Not that there was not totally fair value for the game, but that's your Walmart shopper mentality. Yeah. I got screwed because someone <laughs> had it sale more next week. Who gives a shit that these people spent three years of their fucking lives wound up in hospital <laughs> to actually deliver a game that you're getting at a really great price point? They're the Walmart shopper. They don't give a shit about it. anything but price, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then and then you will see them in the forums saying, they'll say, ah, oh, I saw the, I bought the game, you know, but I don't really. This is the subtext. I don't give a shit about supporting the developer. I just want cheap for me. Yeah, the best deal possible. Best deal possible. That's what makes a better world. Well, you're wrong. It doesn't make a better world. Okay, it doesn't. What happens? What does make a better world is you support the people who make shit that you like, that you want them to keep on making shit that you like, and you feel exchange a fair value for the experience, right? Yeah. And that and that usually you and that if you see the world that way, you're not shopping at Walmart. Because you understand the greater implications, it put out every other mom and pop business. You know, it's 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 a negative cycle, right? So, to those uh, gamers, I'm not interested in those gamers. If if you go, oh well, fuck it, I heard Lord Lanning say the same thing, and he said he he doesn't he's not interested in people who just want best price, even if they can give the developer nothing, they'll be totally happy. I go, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm totally. I don't give a shit about you either. Yeah. Really? Why why should I give a shit about you? You don't give a shit about us. 
right? Well, it's it's the thing where you were talking about No Man's Sky earlier. When that was announced as a sixty dollar release, a physical release, people were going insane because they assume, oh, it's you know a quote unquote indie game. It should be at this fifteen a dollar, fifteen to twenty dollar price point. But you think about what that team is making, and you're like, how is that not worth sixty dollars when your Call of Duty that lasts five hours in terms of the story campaign is also sixty dollars? It's yeah. this 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 idea of value is so skewed and it's all over the place and it's it's I think it's the same issue where people don't know how much it takes to make a game in terms of you know mental capacity or budget yeah it's not easy you know I mean uh, there's all kinds of you can watch interviews talk people talk about how much they work you know I got Bell's palsy on the last production that's how much I ran myself into Jeez. the ground on both sides of my face one after the other so it was like people are actually you know I was going in the hospital thinking maybe it's a stroke and I had that's what it took to pull it out. I was working 15 hours a day for a year. That's how it goes. Right. That's just how it goes. That's yeah. life. You want to be in entertainment. You want to do cool shit. It's not easy. Right. You you said your day job, but you're doing the one you love at night. Right. <laughs> yeah. And if you were able to do it full time, you'll still be working at night and it will be your day job. That's Absolutely. All. You do what you love. It's going to take a lot more, you know, uh, <laughs> a lot more flesh off your bones. You know? <laughs> well, but, then it uh, must be just infuriating to a certain extent when you go through something health-wise like that, and people are saying like, "Oh, I got ripped off. Now this game is on plus, and I paid well, you know, X I amount mean, of dollars for it." You build thicker skin, right, yeah. over time. And what you see is you go, "Look, I am expecting that a certain part of the audience is going to be that way." Um, and it's kind of sad because, like I said, it's just not what builds a better world, right? Everyone time trying to get the cheapest price, and so they buy you know Chinese products instead of American-made products. They buy uh, whatever, get them free, 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 free. Well, what do you know? Now they have a whole free-to-play landscape that they can spend as much money as they want a year, $150,000 a year. Some people pay on a stupid Zynga game, mm. right? They have – they call them whales. So someone who doesn't give a shit about money gets hooked into the pattern, and they'll wind up spending on one game $100,000 in the course of the year. That game was free. Right? Think about this. Yeah. So you're into psychological design. They think they get something free and then they get sucked into a different pattern. Instead of saying, you know what? In the world today, I would rather support the things I want to see more of. That's where, that's where it's worth it to me to put you know, my money, whether it's food products, whether it's clothing, whether it's this, whether it's that, whether it's music. I want to support the artists I love. I just don't want to have to get – I'm not just about pirating music so I don't have to pay. Hey, look how smart I am. I saved 10 bucks and you didn't. Yeah. That's like, okay, you get, you get to wear the big I'm a cheap fuck hat and you get, to, <laughs> you get to be that. Congratulations. But don't think everyone should give a shit about you because you're, you're displaying that you don't give a shit about anyone but yourself. And this just gets into a larger sort of view of world economies and how I think we as a planet need to behave more if we want a planet we'd rather be living on rather than one that we would not rather be living on. Yeah, it's it's the person who pirates a game and then gets really depressed and questions how could that studio close down where it's like, okay, well, you <laughs> stole money from yeah. them. Like, you bought this thing. Like, you, you can say, like, that's not supporting them. That's not... You know, really saying like, hey, I think this is a cool thing. I want to support it because I want more of it. I want to actually you get the vote with your dollars thing a lot. And, you know, it's that, you know, kind of common mantra. But in this case, you're you're actively going against someone when you actually pirate. You're like taking money away from them. So, yeah, it's the entire economy surrounding games right now is it's bizarre. It's weird. And I, I, I do think there are a lot of people who are just waiting for something to become free or half off within a month. Yeah. And, you know, and there's an element of it which you can understand. 
which is uh, life's getting more expensive. These people, you know, what was it? 17 million families got screwed out of their homes yeah. since 2008 because of the banking debacle. How many bankers were arrested for all that illegal activity? Not a one. Yeah. Right. That's the country we live in. So it's making people cynical. Gee, what a surprise. You know, <laughs> so I can understand. Look, if you can't feed your kids or if you can't pay your rent and you need to pirate games, personally, I'd look the other way. Yeah. Right. If you if you need to pirate games so you can drive your BMW, fuck you. <laughs> really? Really? Yeah. And, and if the and if the FBI comes around and one day rounds your ass up, bye. Yeah. Right now, now I'm starting to count and kind of extremists about that, but it's to make the point. That's all. Also, and so, people don't seem to take it very seriously in general. When people pirate, they don't think of it as an actual crime. They think of it as, oh, well, they got away with one. It's like, okay. Yeah, and let's face it, thing. right? We're all guilty at some level, <laughs> right? It's the internet. Everyone, we have yeah. certain expectations. So I don't look at these people. Uh, uh, I mean, I say it kind of harshly, but it's to make the point, you know, it depends on your motivations. But really, if your motivations is, let me, you know, I'll chop down a forest, keep all the money for myself, screw all the animals and anyone who used to depend on it. I own the land, tough, tough shit. You know, that's the that's the thing that's making our, our planet a crummier place, amongst other things. But back to uh, uh, not to whine about all that, but back to. So what do you do? So what you do is you go, OK, well, um, you know, how good – let me just ask this. So if we take uh, uh, New and Tasty, mm -hmm. that was uh, number 10 PC Metacritic for 2015. Yeah. But it's but it's only worth an indie price. See, that price – that Metacritic review wasn't based on the price point. It was based on the quality of the game, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So when we look at what was the quality of experience, right? It's hard to say, well, I expect if it's a, if I don't see commercials on TV, I shouldn't have to pay as much for the game. You know, so there's all kinds of pricing philosophies and shaking out to still be had. You know, one of the things that was an achievement that we did was we were like, look, at the number of games we can plan on uh, selling, uh, you know, conservatively projecting, can, can we buy, bear a higher price point? Now, at the 1995, we're competing against companies that are spending under a million dollars to produce their title. We're spending over five mm -hmm. million, right? So that puts us in a category where we're like with Sony. Look, we're bringing a, a high-quality experience, and can we bear a higher price point on PSN? And we did. We bared 29.99. Is it because we're greedy? No, it's because we want to keep on making games. Absolutely. Gee, you know, crucify us, right? Yeah. That's what we need. It takes money, right? And uh, we haven't done crowdfunding yet. We haven't done different things. So basically, if we're not selling, we're not we're not making. And uh, so on that, we established a track record where. It showed people seeking a quality experience who feel like it's worth it will pay $29.99, right? That doesn't mean we're, we're locked to that, but we broke that price point for PSN and other indies followed and they've had success as well, you know, and some have gone and reached higher. You know, I'm thinking of The Witness was actually selling at a higher price than that. Did they, did Jonathan Blow spend more on the game than we did? I'm not sure, you know, but I, applaud him for being able to break another price point barrier and people wind up happy right that's the key that they get the value for what they paid for and uh in that case you know he prospered he'll be making more games if he yeah. didn't prosper he wouldn't be making more games or he'd be making games on the old crappy model which was basically you know uh pretty onerous one-sided you know publisher let's just call it the golden rule model he with the gold rules right yeah and uh, so in that, 
This time we're talking about it won't be available on Plus, period. And now how do we get that into the audience ahead of time so that if people actually want to play the game, they're not going to wait for Plus? Right. So, so we're talking about this because I think to buy out Plus, I don't necessarily think Sony is going to pay us what we feel like we need this time. Now mm-hmm. that we have a track record, how many moves, how many games did you get to your customers? What was the value you brought to your customers versus what you paid for the content? Was that a great deal for you? You know, it went pretty good. People were pretty happy. Well, th- you know, that means higher price next time or no price next time because it's not going to be available. I think it's extremely and, smart to do this, though, to be able to get out ahead of this, to talk to people, to talk to different sites and say, and you, you try to find a way on the store to communicate that, look, like, if you want this game, maybe sometime in the future it'll be 20% off or 10% off or something like that, but we're not doing a free plus thing anymore because then people won't sit around. They won't say, you know, I'm just going to wait for this to be free. Maybe they boycott you altogether. Yeah. Um, okay, you know, and, and then and then your Walmart customer might do that, right? Uh and you go, okay, but I think personally, my faith is that that's a minority. That's actually a vocal, a very vocal minority. And uh, what we see more of is people actually wanting you to build more games, people actually wanting to support you, people saying, I'll buy in on the other excuse just because I love you guys. I want to see you keep on making games. I felt the drive spell when you weren't, you know, because yeah. we've had our ups and downs, right? And uh, uh, so I, I think. We, actually, we were discussing this with Sony, and I just want to say Sony's been awesome the whole time. Yeah. So um, I'm just identifying purchasing patterns and pricing and, and free months and stuff. But Sony's been awesome. Plus, the plus people, the plus group's been awesome to us. It really it brought a lot of our games, even our old library. It brought uh, those to new players, new generations, and uh, and it keeps on. You know, our our faith is if we keep on building quality and surprising the audience a little bit with something they know and then surprising, you know, lots of layers of goodness on top that they weren't expecting, then um, they're going to want us to keep on building games and they'll be happy uh, that we are and they'll be happy to pay for them. So when we look at all that uh, and when we're talking to Sony, we go, how do we how do we say we're seeing this behavior? They're going, yeah, you know, we see it, too. And I go, well, how do we. um how do we announce that it won't be available on Plus? And they're like, you know, that's kind of a fascinating question because this is the first time it's come up. <laughs> really? You, know? you were the first guys who brought it up? Well, at least I was told that by the person yeah. I was talking to, you know. But uh, it's a new problem, right? So as models go into play, meaning business models go into play and they have some time in the marketplace, everyone learns, right? Everyone learns uh, uh, the upside is this and then, whoa, we got some some blowback that we didn't expect from over here, right? So everyone learns. And what we've learned is there there is an element of the audience that just expects, screw it, I'm not going to buy indie games anymore because they're going to be on Plus in two months. And we're saying, well, that's not a positive trend for anybody, right? I mean, it's good good for Sony, you know, continue to get the subscription. You can understand why some people might feel that way. You don't have to necessarily agree with them, but you can understand why they feel that way. And you go, well, how do we counteract that? If that's the common perception, that it'll be free in two months. Uh, how do we counteract that if it's not going to be? And so, you know, it's an, it's a somewhat of a new problem, at least for us and, you know, I think uh, for Plus. So, uh, you know, we're still uh, a year-ish out from release. So um, TVD, right, a lot of these things still yeah. to be determined. Uh, but I don't, I don't have any illusions of thinking we're such hot shit that uh, Sony's just going to roll out a red carpet of money. You know, to to have a free month. If they did, we'd give it. Uh, but I don't I don't think they would. I don't necessarily think they should. You know, um, 
so just in all fairness, you know, it's something that we got to we got to figure out. And, but I will say, you know, Sony is our best selling network. So, uh, you know, we don't plan on rocking that boat. Yeah. <laughs> we want to keep on nurturing it. And, uh, you know, Xbox has been great for us, too. And so has Steam. So uh, and, you know, sales sales is a reality. Uh, everyone is tending to wait from the sales unless they really want to support you. Unless, you know, and so I'm not giving any criticism on that. I'm I'm in the same camp. You know, some, if I'm not, if it's a developer that I'm like, these guys, I mean, this is how I feel about Double double Fine. There's some other developers. I'm like, these guys need all they can get to keep on making the unique thing that they do. And so I'm going to pay full price, right? Yeah. Uh, on other stuff, I was like, well, I'm mildly interested in this game, um, but I'll wait till it's on sale. You know, uh, but if I'm passionate about the company, about what they do, about their philosophies, I'm, I want to pay full price. For instance, I've crowdfunded quite a number of titles and I've never picked up the title yet. It was really about supporting. I haven't picked up one title from crowdfunding. <laughs> it's just yet. about giving the money and yeah, showing it really like, is. You should make this you know? and we don't want like I did. Uh, when Firewatch came out, I you know I really enjoy like I that's I think that studio is really great and I think that game is great. So I was like I will pay full price for this because I want to oh. see something else like this. And and they got validated, right? Yeah, it's they got validated that people actually do want to see more of that. And and hats off to them. I mean I I, I applaud their success and they had some good success and they're going to keep on making games. And because they got validated, they'll keep on making games down that road. You know they're not going to be like oh shit it didn't work let's make a shooter. You know, oh, that, yeah, that was happening. Right. That was happening. Game developers were trying more innovative routes. Uh, the audience doesn't necessarily stand, understand how painful innovation is in gaming. You know how how hard it is to do something new and get it right the way a racing game should get it right. For example, you know, if you're the builders of Gran Turismo, <clears throat> you've had how many games now, how many decades to really refine driving into a perfection, right? Yeah. So when that game releases, it better be a 10 out of a 10 because you, you've built on all these, all these things to know about and we know what it should be, right? If it's, if it's a uh, Madden or if it's, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, battlefield or something like that, battlefield, you know, you know what it is. It better be a 10 out of a 10 because you've had all this history to build upon, to know player patterns, to know your customer, uh, to know what they care about, what they don't, to have learned from mistakes, to have gotten bug reports, to have gotten, you know, I'm fed up. I want to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) So innovation is hard, you know, and, uh, stranger drafts, for example. So we built the game, we built the tools to make the game and we built the engine all in one budget for a game, mm-hmm. right? And we went out and competed with games that were four, five times the price and slaughtered their Metacritic, right? Yeah. Uh, but it was brutal uh, because it, we had not yet had a game where really it was doing every piece of ammo was having AI, was having its own behavior in a different way. It wasn't just shooting and killing. It was shooting and baiting and tying up and kidnapping, you know, all this bounty hunting. Like, it was all these things that hadn't really uh, been done in a shooter. It didn't necessarily make the game revolutionary. It was still evolutionary, you know. A revolutionary game is just totally out of left field. Minecraft is a revolutionary game, right? Uh, But... uh, in doing that, it was really hard. It was hard to get it to play well because you're dealing with mechanics you haven't played before. And oftentimes what happens is you just don't have the time and money experiment to get it really good. And then it goes to the reviewers, and the reviewers are br- reviewing it like it's Battlefield. 
like it. So there should be a different leniency for people that are taking chances with new uh, – uh, we did great, meaning it worked for us, but I'm not – I'm, I'm saying it wasn't easy, and we really committed to that quality bar. And uh, but when I watch a lot of games, I'm like, this has promise, but they'll probably get it right on iteration three uh, by the third game. Yeah. And if the industry helps support and understand how difficult it is for them to achieve what they're going after, and that it's gonna, if you like where they're going, support them because they're gonna need that support if they're ever gonna have a, a version two. You know, and uh, and. When when they do see that support, then you know then they're able to evolve on it, and with time it should get better and better and better, right? Let's let's just take uh, Firewatch, right? Yeah. With time, their next iteration, I'm sure they're addressing some of the latency issues that people complained about, right? Mm -hmm. But for them to achieve it in Unity in the first place was a big achievement. You know, it was a it was a big gain. So uh, anyway, innovation is hard. You usually can't get it right the first time. And so it takes, you know, some seasons of play and people to actually uh, get better, you know, figure out how to make it really good. But if you're doing, you know, Grand Theft Auto again, uh, let's say Grand Theft Auto 5, right, really was kind of is evolutionary and revolutionary because yeah. you could just do so many things and it looks so damn gorgeous and it played so damn well, right? And there's so much going on. Well, gee, what do you know? It's a couple hundred million or more dollar <laughs> game to make, you know, so they should have got it right. But you expect next time. It should be of a similar quality because they blazed so much ground, did it so well. Now they're building on millions of people that played, that gave them feedback, millions of people that got stuck in certain areas. You know, all these learns that, that they get to have, the analytics that come back and should help them shape into a better game. Speaking of innovation, speaking of trying new things, you mentioned before that uh, New and Tasty was kind of the freshest game you had been a part of recently. Uh, is yeah. Is Soulstorm even more original in a certain sense and creative than Soulstorm? What? Soulstorm's a new game. Yeah. So, I mean, how would you yeah. describe that? Because, like, I was, you know, look, you look through a lot of press stuff, and you, I saw the words like horrifying, terrifying, uh, complete story retake. Is it? <laughs> is it? A, is it a tonal shift? Like, yeah. what's what's kind of what are your kind of goals for what Soulstorm is going to be? You know, it's interesting because first, what happened was we. We, we polled the audience when we said earlier, we said, if we do new and tasty well, what do you want us to do next? And we don't think we'll have the money to do a fully new title. But what would you like us to do next based on you know our recent behavior? And then we gave them like a list of five titles to poll on. And we got you know thousands and thousands of responses, but they said Abe's Exodus. And we were like, oh, like, wow. Okay, well, if we can sell, you know, a quarter million units, we'll we'll focus on a remake in that direction. Mm -hmm. um, we sold more than a quarter million units, and we started off thinking, okay, how do we remake Exodus? But here's what happened: the fact was was that the way Exodus was originally made was the not the way Exodus was originally envisioned necessarily at a story level. There was this brew was supposed to be an active part of the game, and uh, a flammable brew, and uh, that was, I'll just say, I don't want to say a lot more on it, but that was supposed to be an integral part of the evolution of play in that side-scrolling platform universe that we created. Yeah. And uh, in reality, we had to do it in like nine months. So we did a bigger game than Odyssey, and instead of taking three and a half years, we had to deliver it in nine months. That was business conditions. That was publisher needs. Uh, you know, shit happens. That was the legacy. Yeah. That had to be but, costing too in nine months. Jeez. Yeah. It was It was a killer. It yeah. was a killer. And uh, we were sprinting from the beginning to the end, and I don't like what it does to certain people. It burns them out. 
you know, different people have different priorities in life. They should like raising their kids, maybe. Yeah, that seems important. And uh, yeah, you know, kind of important. And uh, so, you know, no one should really have to work those types of conditions. But there we were, you know, survive and try and do a great job, or just quit. I mean, that, those are kind of your choices in those circumstances. Game development's hard. You know, you hear all the, the horror stories and stuff. Yeah. But so uh, we looked at it, and I go, I don't want to tell the Abe's Exodus story again because Abe's Exodus wasn't the story I wanted to tell. And uh, uh, and I think about it like a film director first, and maybe that sounds weird being a game designer, but I think about it in terms of story, story arc, character evolution, and where's this whole property going? And I was like, wow, well, if we if we look at Exodus as an inspiration, like we look at the story as we, I liked the, the idea of shutting down Soulstorm Brewery. I liked the idea of what was, what was supposed to be happening at a, at a, at a meta level. Uh, but the implementation is to just have, I feel like it's time, it's, it's, uh, it's time has passed. Mm-hmm. And, um, and with new and tasty, I felt like Odyssey was kind of, like a a fable that was appropriate to to leave it intact the way it was this lyrical lyrical poetic contained piece kind of like uh a a uh, dr seuss story you know it's it's a story it's lyrical don't change green eggs and ham right yeah. like don't just please don't mess with it um but if you want to bring us a new version in cg cool but it better be green eggs and ham you know <laughs> like i don't want to hear a new rhyme there i know the lyrics right <laughs> so uh so for what we did was we got started on on uh how to approach it where we use exodus as a story inspiration and from that beyond that uh it's all new and it's a new game. Now that's getting us in a little bit of trouble, you know, because uh, it's like shit, you know, time and energy and and new technology to build, and we're building on top of the uh, apes, apes, uh, the new and tasty technology. Uh, now we're in, uh, you know, physically based rendering. I mean, the uh, the image qualities, it's up. I think there's a lot of surprises with what's coming. We hope to have some announcements fairly soon. Yeah, I mean, um, you've been releasing some screenshots, and it looks. Amazing! Like it looks. Have we released screenshots? There's like some little that screenshots of the game more. Oh, of those Abe were just. Himself. Those were just. Yeah, that was just Abe, right? So so yeah. far we've only teased that's Abe's new resolution, and uh, uh, and we we were teasing kind of where where this is going, and uh, it's way more in, intense and sort of shocking of a game, but it's still really. Dark, dark humor. You know? I mean, it's, yeah. just, it's just really out of hand. There's something that and, makes it almost darker when it's at that high of a fidelity for a character like him. There's there's something when I saw it, and I'm like, oh, this is like what this is really supposed to be. Like it's another level of that. Well, thank you. And what we were doing was we were like, okay, how, if I showed you, and at some point we will, uh, you know, when we do like a developer diary or something, yeah. when we show you what Abe looked like as a gray model in the la- in New and Tasty versus what he looks like now, which is the images re-released. It's like, oh my god! But you have to look at it as we were looking at it. If we say, well, we need to res him up, and he needs to be more Abe than Abe, right? So before I feel like we were dealing with sort of a symbol of Abe, and now I feel like we're actually nurturing the life form of Abe. Yeah, that, no. that we wanted to, we wanted to really increase that resolution, really increase that believability, because we want the inform, in, the emotional in, uh, in performance to be more heavy. Yeah. Right. 
And that doesn't mean the humor's gone. It doesn't mean we're not total wise asses of how we unfold play <laughs> because we are, and that just got a lot worse. I can guarantee. Yeah, it wouldn't be odd world without that. It, it's going to be messed up, man. But uh, uh, the the thing the we it's way more emergent in what it does this time. Now people can be like, man, he's just saying, he's talking shit, but he's not saying anything. Well, I'm not. You know, I'm waiting. <laughs> Because uh, hopefully we, we make a little bit of, you know, we need to, um, we, we have to be strategic because we, let me, let me put it this way, back to the uh, independent developers, you know, begging plea out there of please understand what we're dealing with. We don't have advertising budgets. Yeah. So what we have to do is, you know, we got onto the stage at the Indie Showcase in, in 2013 with Sony. We got invited to be on the stage. We need stuff like that. We have to build games that are cutting through enough so that uh, so so that the stores that sell these games, even if it's Android and iTunes, um, you know, uh, iPhone, right, iOS, even if it's Android or Apple, those stores they are going to promote the top quality content for free to their audience because they need to show that there's cool stuff here, right? We ride, we are able to surf that need. And give them something. If you look at our games, everywhere they are, they're four and a half stars. Yeah. Right. And so we 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 rely on that. If we did a three and a half level uh, star level game, we're not going to get the generosity of the the networks promoting us for us for free. And and that's how it has to be because like other indies, we don't have an advertising budget. Right. So we have to really strategically. Uh, if we're going to make a big announcement, we can't have blown it early or we might not get support for bigger entities and we really need that support for exposure. That word of mouth yeah. exposure too, which is so massive for an indie game where, you know, if, like you said, if it's a three star quality, people are like, oh, you can skip it. And again, that mentality of I'll get it when it's free. But when it's a Firewatch gone home bastion five star thing, people are like, no, you yeah. need to experience this. It becomes such a... You know, everyone's talking about it on Twitter. Everyone's talking about it just on different sites where you're like, I need to be a part of this conversation. Yes, and case in point, you know, when Stranger's Wrath released, which we had a lot of, a lot of trauma around and, and a lot of bitterness around uh, with the publisher relationship. It's all been over talked about. But when it released, my friends, co-designers, owners of other developers didn't even know the game released. God, right? So that's how you get buried. That's how you get eclipsed. Uh, that's how you can get screwed. So. You have to, and that was high quality, right? Yeah. So you have to have uh, enough high quality that networks want to promote you because they know you've got good product that their customers are going to be happy with if they just know about it. And so we have to rely on that. So we can't talk about that much right now uh, because we will basically blow our water early. Uh, you know, whether it's network distribution partners, we won't get other people helping to expose us, and we really need that if we're going to be successful. And if we're going to keep on building games. So uh, I'm being a little tight-lipped about it. But I can say this. Um, and if I'm wrong, crucify me later. right? But I can say we have never been in this good a place this early in development. Meaning what we are playing um, is something we've, we, we haven't played before. Uh, we haven't exactly seen before. It's evolutionary. It's not revolutionary. It's built on the, uni the new and tasty sort of style of, of uh, you know, play. It's built on top of that engine, but now it's doing the PBR rendering. It's doing this and that. And we're taking more advantage of where the hardware systems are going. So we want to be able to expand. You know, uh, what, is, what is Sony calling theirs? We're not, we're not exactly sure yet, right? Is 4.5? Is it Neo? Yeah, the Neo, is it, the, yeah. 
PlayStation yeah. 4K is kind of this silly yeah. thing going around. Maybe it is, you know, I don't know. But uh, what we, and, and this is going to lead, you know, you you opened with these questions talking about, uh, you were you were asking me earlier, you know, we'll we'll talk about some of the where we think that hardware yeah. cycle is going and what's going on. But we wanted to have a core that was way more emergent, way more uh, uh, intense, uh, and way more sort of sort of shocking and hilarious. And we wanted that to be in place. So we wanted, if in New and Tasty you could solve, in the original game, Apes Odyssey, you might be able to solve puzzles one way, at times one way. Uh, and then in New and Tasty, there became multiple ways you could solve any problem. Uh, now in this game, there's going to be many more ways different players will solve the same problems. And that means we need more physics, we need more dynamic uh dynamic stuff and more physics-based stuff happening in the game so we can get more emergent possibilities so that if you play and you're doing a Twitch stream, there's something really unique about the way you're playing that makes it more engaging for other people to watch. Yeah, and not to sound dramatic at all, but is there almost a redemptive nature to what you're doing with Soulstorm? And by that I mean you talk about how Abe's Exodus was kind of this nine-month project where it didn't exactly come out exactly the way you envisioned it does this almost feel like a second crack at something that you really felt passionate about before yeah yeah and i don't want to take anything away from the team the team did an amazing job uh on that original apes exodus you know the metacritic was high um it, it worked out we sold units all that stuff people were happy but i felt like it was suffering from what i call sequelitis and it's exactly what it did suffer from, in my opinion, as the creator, which was as the primary, you know, creative driving force. A lot of people participate in the creation of that game. I never want to take any of that uh, validity away from them. Um, so, you know, that being said, but as the as the uh, uh, the director, I felt like time and circumstance was squeezing it into. I need a script. By you know, Sherry would tell me we need the script done in nine to ten days. And then we got to execute on it, and that's what we have to live with. So do the best job you can in that amount of time. And that's not how you get the best script, right? You get the best script of like, shit, you know, someone's been cooking a long time, and they learn this and that, and they go back to it, and all all these iterations, and iterations, and finally you get something, you know, that's the godfather, right? You're just like, wow, man, what a script, you know? Um, And so, so... what I call sequelitis, which is uh, rarely is the story as good as the original, particularly in movies, because there's the deadline becomes more important than a great story, right? Because now they're building on a known brand, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we were the one of the biggest hits for the publisher for Abe's Odyssey that year. Other people fell through. Other big titles fell through. Uh, and didn't deliver for Christmas, which meant the publisher took a huge stock hit in terms of their Wall Street value. And then they were like, guys, you're the one who came through for us. you got to come through for us next year because we're not sure who we can rely on. And you're like, oh, man, that wasn't the plan, you know, but okay, you know, we're all in this together. We're trying to be good partners. And that's what happens. And that's what happens in Hollywood every day. You know, they're like, oh, that movie was great. Matrix was great. Uh, guys, give us another one in, in two years, whatever the circumstance was. But feel free to spend a lot more money this time because we know we're going to make it back. Well, as we all know, not one of those movies was as good as the original. No. Right? But they had way more money. Uh, they just had different sets of pressures because now they're pressured to deliver another Matrix-branded movie, not a great movie. 
And uh, so they're trying to make it great, but time, you know, is how great can script be by Saturday? (laughs) That's the one we're going to go with. And yeah, and some studios just need that amount of time. You look at uh, Inside, which just came out from uh, Playdead, who made Limbo. Like Limbo took, what, five, six years, and then they were given another five, six years to make this thing. And from what everything I've heard, it's... It's amazing. It's it's he steps beyond limbo because certain studios, if something great took six years and you want another one, you're not going to do that in two years and make it just as good. There's a reason it took that long. There's a certain level of uh, of patience you have to have with a project like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, hats off to them. If they can continue to operate that way. I mean, I thought limbo was really uh, a uh, it was basically a. Yuri, Ori before, right? Yeah. Is it Ori? Is that yeah, the Ori in the Blind Forest, I think. Yeah, it was really like the earlier version of Ori, you know, both of which were just basically masterful artistic works of interactive experience. And they were gorgeous. I mean, um, they, I, I felt that way about both. I always wanted to make a black and white game mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, it's just like filmmakers always want to make a black and white film because there's something about the stark, beautiful, noirish quality that you can get, the lighting you can get, that color just makes it more difficult. You know, it doesn't have that sort of this, this, yes, it feels dated, but there's something really, you know, photographers always love black and white photography yeah. more than color. You know, it's just a common thing amongst designers and painters and, photographers and cinematographers things like that directors they wish they could make black so you saw you know francis ford coppola making rumble fish yeah you know if you remember that you know with mickey rourke and those guys or uh uh the other one he did in black and white the uh what was about the kids you know ralph oh god uh uh, the I want to say the Lost Boys. But We're was, all over the place with names today. It's hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> but another one, you know, he shot it in what was it, the 1980s. He shot it in black and white. Um, it happens occasionally, you know. Yeah. But but my point is, they were both masterful works of passions of love, and the audience that loved them got that and wants to support that and wants to see more. So I'm sure uh, the the uh, the new one, you know, the predecessor to Limbo, will be really. I, I look forward to seeing it. I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it just I also, came out today, I think. I also look forward to is, – is Cuphead out yet? No, I was actually just going to bring out – because you're talking about kind of old school looks. Like Cuphead is yeah. almost out. Cuphead, I – they added a lot of um, like platforming and – I don't know if combat's the right word, but they showed more of the, the game part of Cuphead, yeah. which looks fine. But it's just the look of it that is – it's, there's nothing like it, and that's another example. If you look at something and you see, you can see the passion when just a trailer is playing. When you're like, oh, they love to do what they're doing. I, I tell you, you know, I almost feel like, uh, hey guys, give me a job as your business dev or your pro- <laughs> or your product uh, director, you know, because I think they did something brilliant, right? Just to relish on it a couple minutes is, is uh, what they did was they took a genre which is basically uh, Schlesinger era. Uh, you know, original Mickey era cartoons, right? I'm thinking of Schlesinger. I think that was who it was. Uh, and they're doing these really, you know, 1930s-ish cartoon style as a 21st century game medium. And no one's done that, right? No one has done it. And when you saw it, you go, holy shit, that feels like those old cartoons, you know. But man, as a game, holy shit. It's shocking how much it looks like that. Like it's, it's not shocking. even like, – there's sometimes you can see like, oh, it's kind of a cheap representation. Like, no, this – looks 
just identical to something like that. Yeah, and actually it's better, but it's true to the style, yeah. right? So it's actually, you know, it's clear resolution. You don't have all these artifacts running. You don't have, you know, varying frame rates that used to happen back in the day because projectors weren't at constant speeds. You know, all these little things. And so it, it took an old style and it revitalized it. But what it really did for them, and this is where I hope they go with it, I hope what they did is they see themselves as having created a new genre. And that new genre, let's call it antique animation meets high-tech gameplay. Yeah. Let's call it that, right? And so in this new – the antique genre that they just did that's uh, you know, focusing on this old animation style, now they could own that sector. If they, if they just stay uh, as a brand – if I'm not saying the whole development studio needs to stick to this, but as a brand, if they just go, you know what, there's going to be a new Cuphead style game coming, you know, every year or two from us, you'd be like, wow, uh, that's no anyone else doing it is going to look like they're imitating them. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So they were able to nail it. And this is where creativity, you know, it's not like they're not doing anything in that game that I saw that's pushing any new uh, pushing any new boundaries of computing. Right. It's taking old style play. That we pretty much know, side scroller, boss level type stuff, uh, you know, adventure, side scroller type things, and then it's putting, it's using that old animation technique. So they stuck them together and they got something brand new and no one's ever seen before, and yet we're familiar with it. That's the brilliance of it. We already know it, but we've never seen it before. And when we see it, we go, "My God, why didn't someone else think of this?" Right? Now that as a brand, they could they could create. 30 titles in this could become a section, you know, at GameStop eventually, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you should you should work for this team. You are selling this game better than anyone I've heard sell this game before. <laughs> you know, it's how I look at it as an yeah. IP creator. I'm like, wow, are you guys aware of what you really touched on here? And uh, and hopefully, you know, we get to see them push it in directions that really just continues to get excited is exciting in this like classically antique way yeah and it's it's when it's paired with that familiar like you said the platform and you look at something like fez which is you know it seems like a normal platformer but you know suddenly you can shift the entire world and the orientation of it and now there's these puzzle elements you're layering atop but because it has that base that's familiar people are more willing to give it a try because they think it's something that they know yeah, I can't wait. You know, I, I, I'm just, I'm totally, uh, I completely agree. I can't wait to play it. I hope it plays really well. As it happens to me occasionally, I see some games. I won't mention what they are. I think it's going to be wonderful. I play it and I go, "How can you make a game this good looking and you blew it so bad on the controls? Like, what are you thinking?" You know, uh, which is why I don't review games because if I did, I'd be just slaughtered as a designer. I would read a review from Lauren Landon all day, every day. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I would build, I would build so many enemies, you know. I appreciate you saying that, but if you really knew how hostile I am as a player, you know, I'd just be like, Why did they see. But I love that. I love the. There's something just fascinating to me about someone who's made games for so long, taking a game and critiquing it, and you know, understanding. Of course, you don't understand exactly what they went through throughout the years of developing it, yeah. but you understand certain ideas that, you know, as someone who I used to review games for six years, I don't understand it to that depth that you do. So you'd be able to critique it in a way that I would find fascinating. <laughs> you know, maybe I think eventually it would get me hung. You know, someone would <laughs> drag me out and just kill me for for uh, complaining so much. But, um, you know, as a gamer, I'm just like an irate gamer. I mean, I subscribe to Francis on YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, and 
I, I just totally relate to him, you know, like half of the time I'm watching him just to see if he's actually going to have a heart attack this time. <laughs> and then the rest of it, I just completely agree with how he feels, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm really bad. Like I'm, I complain about software. My, my team is just sick to death of it, but I'm like, oh, couldn't iOS make this stupid decision? They're not testing their software. Who's the UX guy? Why don't they shoot Johnny Ive already? You know, like all this, <laughs> all this stuff, you know, I mean, I'm just really bad. So uh, maybe in retirement when I'm no longer trying sell case. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I can't wait for the, the retirement blog that comes out of this. See, you'll uh, be the one living in Florida and you'll be writing about games. This is really I would love to do that. You know, and then I could be fishing and not just in the dry California. You could, could kickstart this. You could kickstart this easily if Kickstarter is still a thing by then. This is maybe, a uh, maybe Patreon. Yeah, maybe. You know, I should probably remove this part from the podcast. This sounds like a business thing in the future. Um, so before we were talking a bit about Leo and Scorpio and these kind of console half steps, which is yeah. So different than kind of what we've seen recently. On certain handhelds, you see like Game Boy to Game Boy Color, these kind of certain steps that aren't exactly these massive technological leaps, but not yeah. really in the console space like this. Do you expect this as kind of the new norm where we're not really thinking PlayStation 5 and you know the newest Xbox? We're thinking more of just this is the PlayStation platform. Here is the, the new upgraded version that is kind of compatible with this other software you already have. You're almost... You're spending, you're basically buying a new box, but you're almost upgrading uh, the hardware in a different sense than we have before. That's right. And uh, I, I do, uh, again, you know, it's not like I've sat with Sony and they told me exactly what's going on. It's not like I've sat with Microsoft and they told me exactly what's going on. Yeah. I have my own assumptions, right? And based on what I see and what our assumptions are, um, I think what you just said is correct. I think it is based more on the cell phone model. I think VR is driving it. And then I can give you more more fill in on why I think it's necessary. Uh, so if we look at uh, you know let's look at the last generation of hardware right from from if we go from the beginning Atari up up on through right mm -hmm. to uh, all the different devices to today we had five to seven years of a, of a console era before a new console was out and we've seen that actually extending a little bit more with time yeah which is counter to Moore's law of computing. Right. Meaning computer growth is going to grow exponentially. Blah, 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 blah. And so we saw hardcore gamers on PC would be upgrading maybe to a new card every year. They want to stay contemporary. Um, but you're on the Windows operating system. Right. Or OpenGL graphics. Right. Uh, or uh, DirectX graphics. So it's an evolutionary OS. It's not a revolutionary OS. The history of consoles is revolutionary OSs, which means you get to the end of the PlayStation 1 era and basically throw out all your tools, throw out your engines. It's start over, baby. It's a whole new beast. Figure out how the hell this chipset that was designed to be cheap, powerful and cheap. I call it a Kudaragiism, right? I was not a big <laughs> fan of I was not a fan of Kudaragi because I felt as though he absolutely did not understand the developer's needs and he would be offensive about it. Meaning he would say, Well, sure, PlayStation 2 is hard to program for, but this is a good thing because this is going to mean only the smart programmers survive. So he had a very Darwinian way of looking yeah, at it. This exclusive like, kind of idea for it. Yeah, it's like, it's like, who are you kidding, man? Why don't you do the following? Why don't you learn how games are made, which you don't really know? Why don't you learn how they're made? Uh, and so then you can make software 
that makes games more more let's not say easy because that's an easy cop-out way to look at it that are more fluid and can allow better experimentation more iterations of uh of new explorations more risks to happen on lower budgets and then everyone's happy if you go in i, I use the analogy of a camera for for hollywood right mm. so imagine panavision comes out with a new camera now, up to this day, one guy operates the camera. He has assistants and stuff, right? One guy. Now, Panavision comes out with a new camera, and they go, oh, you're going to love this camera. Yeah, it takes five people to operate. Yeah, it makes your film four times more expensive to produce, but you're going to love this new camera, right? Yeah. That camera would be dead Absolutely. before it ever hit the market. But in games, you could get away with it because you were really selling processors, right? And so if you could have a PlayStation 2, a PlayStation 3, an Xbox 360, uh, if you could have these things at lower price points, that was the name of the game, right? You're not selling to a professional like who's buying the uh, uh, Panavision camera to make films at a film studio. You're selling to the consumer who's basically, you know, buying the device that they're going to buy new games for. And so that meant it had to be really cheap, right? So you had to figure out how to bring supercomputing cheaper into a piece of plastic that people could buy for like $2.99. That was the, that was the, the Cold War of game consoles. It was like every time you just flush your old tools, you start over. You know, if you remember all the, you know, pissing and moaning back PS2, PS3 era, uh, uh, you know, it, it, they weren't the only ones guilty of this. It was just basically the cycle of the industry. You started over. It was a new you, piece you, of hardware. Yeah, if you were in Suck college or something like that, you you basically sell everything you had before for the new set of hardware. I mean, Sony joked about, like, it might have been Kudaragi had said, like, you know, when the PlayStation 3 was $600, like, oh, well, get a second job. It's it's that good. It's that exclusive thing where it's like, hey, it's it's worth this money. And you're like, what are you saying? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there was some things there that were, uh, you know, maybe kind of arrogant, right? Maybe it was like, well, I don't need the understanding needs because I'm doing the important part and you guys will just catch up. Yeah. Well, um, you know, in video games, you were able to get away with that. If you were trying to do that with uh, navigatable map software and right now, you'd be no one would use your product. Right. Yeah. So the competitive playing field changes a lot of that. But anyway, that's the legacy. So what that meant was all your tools are not evolutionary. You learned evolutionary steps from them, but you didn't get to reuse them. You know, your millions of dollars in tools investments, you didn't really get to reuse as you went into the new uh, generation of hardware. Your engines, there might have been some algorithms here and there, some behavior in there, but you had to rewrite it all, man. You were just in a new camp, right? And there was new things coming online like multiplayer, you know, new functionalities, all these things figuring themselves out. The case, case in point being, it, cell phones changed that way of thinking, in my opinion. Now, we could say Apple computers and uh, Windows PCs actually had been doing this, meaning it was about an OS. And then that OS would evolve with time. And if you had a PC, you could just swap out the card. You could add more RAM. You might have, you know, half of your box is five years old, but a third of it is two years old. And, and another third is, uh, or, you know, whatever the ratio. But another piece of it is brand new, right? And so you're accelerating here and there, and you, and you got a little patchwork. But it's still using the same 
core mm -hmm. operating system. And then that operating system has a new version. There'll be some things you have to adjust to stay compatible, but it's not a rev it's not a restart. It's not like you're going, it's not like you, you got to go, okay, now we got to learn how to read Greek and none of us read Greek. Right. And that's what the console history was like. So what's ha what happened with cell phones is, uh, I think now, you, now you've got, you know, Google really led the way. I mean, uh, Apple really led the way with the smartphone, right? The, the iPhone. Yeah. And, uh, and and then tablets and stuff. But what happened was they realized, oh, now the computing is going to go in this little handheld device. We need evolutionary because really we can we can make new improvements every six months. And eventually that mean we're running maps reliably. We're doing uh, customer purchasing for Christmas via the iPad and the tablet and the phone. Like these are new capabilities that were coming online. And as they would come online, uh, People had reasons to upgrade, right? So before your phone was running, when you were running on a uh, BlackBerry, you didn't have maps. You didn't have internet browsing to the same extent. You know, there's a lot of things you didn't have. Then the true smartphone comes along and everything changes. And where's BlackBerry today? Dead in the water, right? Absolutely. Dead. So now, so in order to increase customer capability with computing that basically went mobile and i don't mean mobile in terms of a laptop it really went mobile in terms of something fitting in your pocket not in your knapsack or briefcase and so now they knew that we want more we we are underpowered and we want more performance coming in as quickly as possible so we have better maps performances we have better this performances we have better shopping experiences through these mobile computing devices it drove it in a way where the os became the core and then the hardware would evolve upon the OS and then the OS would evolve too, right? So just think of Android. Uh, so now you can buy a whole slew of different phones from different places at different price points, but they're all on the same OS. Yeah. They all access the same stores. They all shop the web. They all run maps. And now what do they have? They have a new problem. How do we get people to want to replace their old phone? I'm still running an iPhone 5. Some people laugh at me, and I laugh back. I go, I don't need a bigger screen. I don't need faster anything. Eventually, they'll make it so it's obsolete. If I want to upgrade to the new OS, they're going to be like, sorry, your iPhone 5 won't do it. Eventually, I'll get screwed like that, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, eventually, like, yeah, things will not run smoothly or just will not run at all. Well, you'll be forced to. But as of right now, I mean, there's exactly. no real purpose. And if you talk to Samsung, if you talk to Apple, that uh, as developers, they're looking now because because you if from an iPhone 5 to an iPhone 7, is there enough there that makes you want to go out and spend you know 600 bucks for your whole upgraded new phone? No, because the iPhone 5 is doing what I need. We've passed the curve of I now have GPS. I got a smartphone because of GPS. That was the main reason I got a smartphone. Right, I went away from my. Uh, what was it? Uh, like a Garmin or no? The other one. Uh, oh the other, God! You know, it came out of uh, Trio. It was yeah. a Trio, right? And I, lo I loved it because it had a keyboard. You know, so we went through all these evolutionary steps. But when I could have maps reliably and never worry about getting lost again uh, with all the travel that we do, that was that was the catalyst to make me buy it, right? And that was like an iPhone two. And so I upgraded a couple times because shit got better, it got faster, more reliable, better reception, better better data bandwidth. Faster downloading speeds, all these reasons to get it. But you know what? Today, pretty good. I'm running my email, calendars, Skype. Well, Skype's still a battery hog. I delete it every time I install yeah, it. Same here. But, but uh, you know, I'm running all these other things. They function for me. So now I don't need a new one. 
and they recognize this because most of the audience feels that way. Most of the audience is not like, ah, I can't wait for the new iPhone to come out because that's going to mean I can do what that you don't already do. Yeah, do everything a little bit faster, baby, but it's, nothing, it, nothing it, massive different where, again, when you look at PS3 to PS4, you're like, oh, well, I need this because I can't play other games on this. With the new phone, it's just, it's a little bit better. Exactly, and a little bit better. Is that worth four to six or seven hundred bucks, depending on how much memory and shit you're going to get in there? Not for most people. So they see this coming, right? So they need to increase why are uh, mobile phones, uh, you know, going to be better and better. So they're going to increase more capabilities that use. Uh, that, well, let me say they'll increase increase applications and usage that encourage people to require more performance and that's yeah. the cycle of things you know the fashion industry has to convince you that last year's cool clothes are not cool anymore and this year's are in and you need to buy new ones right it's like fashion it's sort of that's the model we can all understand you have clothes that work but you got to upgrade because they guilted you into it <laughs> you know <laughs> so on the let's let's bring this back now to vr for a while uh everyone was kind of hoping 3d tvs would take off because even gpu companies would tell you uh, they'd say, you know, the, the, it's running pre pretty realistic games today on a single screen, and we're, we can see a slowdown in card sales because people don't understand why they need new ones. But if we can run in 3D, then there's twice the amount of computing, and now we'll sell more cards. Mm. So the whole Katzenberg push of 3D TVs was being driven by, can we get people to replace their big screen? It's all the same problem. They've got a big screen. It's HD. They don't need something new. Well, can we sell them stereo? Then we can sell them a new Blu-ray deck and we can sell them a new TV. But if we can't bring something significant to their existing experience, there's no reason for them to upgrade. Yeah. And so now VR. So VR requires so much power to do it well that we can count on the next 20 years. We'll use all the cycles that come online like that. Right. We'll just mm. suck them up like that because how should it run? It should ideally run at a minimum of 90 to 120 20 frames per second. 120 frames per second is really pristine. Right. 120 frames per second. Normal games, if they're running fast, they're running at 60. Oftentimes they're clamped at 30. There's a lot of 30 that have come out, especially yeah. on this you know, first every, set of hardware. Yeah. And every show is 30. Every television show is 30. So we're used to looking at 30, right? If you don't have a game like New and Tasty, we locked off at 30 because uh, for different reasons, but it actually was a more solid, reliable playing experience at 30 rather than adjusting somewhere between 60 and then 45 and occasionally 38, you know, and that just led to latency, uh, unexpected changes in controller response to this and that. It was a better game locked at 30. But if it were a racing game, it's not going to be. Right? A racing game is going to need a lot of faster update rate. Uh, if it's Quake, it's not going to be better at 30. Yeah. Right. So we could we could get away with it. Uh, but now you're in VR. The best VR is going to run at 120. It's it requires stereo, so now you have to go four times the frame rate per eye. So now you're into you know how many more times is this? Not a direct 8x more computing. It's more than that. But so now you're running all that new need. And even the best examples aren't where the developers would like them to be. Yeah. So you're going to have now, for the, for the first time in a long time, you're going to have new experiences that you just want and, and are thirst for more computing power. And at the same time, you're going to have screen improvements every, every few months. Self, cell is really demonstrating this, right? Lucky Palmer's first screens were basically cell phone screens. Yeah. 
right? So the, the, the screen technology keeps on taking exponential leaps and getting better. Uh, my iPhone is like, what, 2K-ish screen? It's not HD. It's higher resolution than that. So, and, uh, uh, and now we need more and more and more. So how are you going to create a box that lasts seven years that really demands more power now? You're not going to. Yeah, you need that upgrade. But so do you, you need that upgrade. So do you think that uh, the the phone model has now kind of trained our brains in a way where the average consumer will accept this kind of like half step? Because right now I feel like there's this again. It's hard to tell if it's just well, they already have very, accepted it, right? They just you think that they said it with consoles though? Because I feel like a lot of people have complained, and it's hard to tell from Twitter, from forums, from stuff well, like you that. Got, but how many are playing consoles with VR? None. None. Yeah. None. Right. But as soon as you get uh, uh, as soon as you start playing with VR and, and then you play, uh, without jumping too far ahead of ourselves, but as soon as you pl- start playing with VR, let's say you're playing it on Sony, right? Mm-hmm. Sony's VR is good enough to get you to want to buy it, right? It's good enough to get you to want to buy it. Is it the highest resolution that uh, HTC is running? No, no. no. Right. So if you run in the absolute latest, uh, you know, stacked GPU card PC uh, on custom software, running a VR experience on the latest top end experimental headset and you try that, you're going to want it. Yeah. Right. But you're also going to realize I- I'm three thousand dollars away from that. I, I can't <laughs> afford it. Right. But I want it. And so uh, perform like. This is an area where we're computing performance is really going to make a difference in the content experience. And so how do you move with that appetite? Well, who's already demonstrating it? Cell phones. So cell phones are demonstrating the model that's already doing where consoles are headed. And it's smart because the, the part of the reason games are so expensive and expensive to make is because of this console revolution that constantly takes place every five to seven years. Yeah. And as a result, costs go up. I've explained this to, to studio heads in Hollywood, to famous directors that don't understand the game business. They're like, well, yeah, but you know, your last game, it sold a quarter of uh, what the previous game sold. And you're like, you don't get it, man. You guys are in la-la land. Yeah. You, you live in a place with 150,000 movie screens on planet Earth. Next year, there'll be 155,000 planet screen, screens on planet Earth. That number doesn't go away and say, oh, well, now the new theaters are here. Yeah, start again, you, new way to do everything. To new theater, you can't, you can't watch the film, right? That's the video game industry. And they go, but that's insane. And you're like, welcome to video games. <laughs> really? It like, does look crazy from the outside. Like, I never, you never does. really think about it. And neither did they. I can assure you. You know, they, they're like, oh, well, you know, and they're judging like, well, your, your last game wasn't as successful as the last game. And you go, well, there was only a million units of hardware when they released versus 70 million units of hardware when the previous one released. And they go, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, they were clueless. Right now, the world's getting wiser. You know, now people know, you know, what CG means. Right. I mean, I remember when they didn't even know what that meant. Yeah. But uh, uh, so. We've come a long way, but what's happening is that VR is really introducing that there's going to be a whole new appetite, and it's so radically, shockingly different of an experience that when people get a good taste of it, it's not going away. But what's going to happen is their demand for computing is you're right back to like from the SNES and wanting a CD, you know, and the PlayStation comes along, right? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you're in a different category, and you know, look what happened, right? 
new new opportunities. So I think you're going to see the new heads, the new machines is basically like you just buying an iPhone 6 instead of an iPhone 5, but they're both running the same stuff. But if you have an iPhone 6, it'll it'll run better. Now, here's the difference. And this is the problem with the cell phone companies is the big successful game companies are not maximizing the latest high end cell experience. Yeah. They're actually targeting the lowest cell experience. Think about it. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Angry Birds is not trying to make it run and look great on iPhone 7 that's coming. No, because it needs everyone else who still has an older phone like you to be able to exactly. actually enjoy that. So the most successful games on mobile are not pushing mobile graphics experience. So where mobile's trying to get to is they want to be a simultaneous release platform for the latest games. Now, imagine that, right? And this is years ago, we were all laughing at mobile as a game device. You could play checkers on it, right? But it's caught up to the point where the latest game, like uh, the latest game will basically be playing pretty good on your console and pretty good on on your phone. And because the phones have been in the six month release cycle, they didn't wait five years to upgrade. And so what's happened? Their evolutionary curve has happened so much faster than the evolutionary curve of consoles. And the console makers, look, they're consumer electronics companies, right? They're not stupid. So they see they're very aware of this curve. And, you know, you have enormous superpowers that have emerged in the corporate technology space uh, coming out of, you know, you got Samsung, you got Google, you got other people that just, you know, they weren't on the planet before. Yeah. And now they're titans, right? So I don't think this escapes Microsoft. I don't think it escapes Sony. I don't think it escapes Oculus, HTC, you know, any of these guys. And, uh, and I mean, Oculus said years ago, they go, look, think of it like cell phones. You know, if you went to developer groups for Oculus, they said, think of it like cell phones. The technology is going to get better every six months. We're not going to try and make, now I'm ad-libbing, but we're not going to try and make 70 million of the same headset that gets a little cheaper to make after the first three years so we can mm-hmm. offer cheaper price, which is the old which is the old console model, right? Hey, now you can get a PlayStation 2, but it's a little smaller and it's a little cheaper, but it's uh, it's just, it's still exact same PlayStation thing. 2, right? Yeah. Instead of that, you're going to have people want more power and the OS becomes the console. So the OS is really the console. The way it's Android is really the console. iOS is really the console. And now we have pieces of hardware that evolve with that OS and take more advantage of it, you know, and, and, and evolve it. Uh, and so that's a radical shift in, in terms of, you know, what console gaming has had. The promise of it, I think, is that it allows us to keep building and evolving our tool set rather than flushing them down the drain every few years. Engines and tools, right? Yeah. So even if you're on PlayStation 3, you know, what's the chances that, let's say in the beginning, you know, PlayStation 3 relaunches, what's the chances that Unreal was running on PlayStation 3 in time for you to make release? You know, it's pretty slim, right? Because Unreal's got a lot of work to do because they got to make it work on PlayStation 3 too. Whereas if it was an evolutionary model, then they're, you know, changing some bells and whistles to optimize some new uses the same way you would with like DirectX 11 to DirectX 12 leap. Right. But you're not rewriting all of DirectX. You're just adding in new capability and then people are taking advantage of it. But it's evolutionary. Windows is evolutionary. Well, except for tech, but let's ignore that. (laughs) But even even if it is evolutionary, you're not flushing everything else away as a developer. Is there 
going to be a challenge knowing that let's just use PlayStation 4 and 4.5. Let's use that terminology now, where you have you are now designing with four in mind because like the phone you don't want to leave four behind you don't want to make the new odd world game you know like ideal for four you know playstation four and a half and leave everyone else behind are you kind of developing well you you think about you think about uh you think about capabilities at your core so we'd say well are we running dynamic simulation that we can turn up the dial on if we have more power all right so an example would be uh let's just say I'm not saying this is our game specifically, but yeah. let's just say Destructibles, right? So Destructibles didn't use to bounce around on the scene. They blew up and went away, right? Yeah. Immediately. But with physics inform- performance, eventually you got Crytek, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then you got like, you know, people blowing up 10,000 barrels of explosives. You know, you couldn't do that before. It's just scaling, right? You, and now those barrels are bouncing down hills and hitting players and all kinds of crazy stuff emerges. So you have a more emergent sense of play because you have, you're actually doing more of a simulation rather than a pre-canned effect. So if we go back into gaming and we look at old, you know, Abe's Odyssey as a bitmap game, it was all pre-canned effects. You might have had something bouncing in a physics-y way. We actually didn't. But you may have. Uh, I'm thinking of games like The Incredible, excuse me, The Incredible Machine. Do you remember that game? Yes. Right? It was a little physics set. It was yeah. awesome. A little 2D physics set, right? So you had all kinds of emergent possibilities. You just moved shit around and you had a different machine that you were playing with. Uh, but we didn't see much of that in actual games unless that was the game. Meaning, you know, the game is about having a little fun chemistry set with small goals that you can unfold different ways because it's kind of emergent. It was mm-hmm. rarely one way to do it right, right? Um, so anyway, getting back to that. If you design mechanics like uh, destructibles, uh, uh, combustibles, uh, things that have dynamic effects on gameplay and involve more sort of physics and emergent behavior, emergent possibilities, then you can you, you hopefully can turn the dial. So let's say, ah, well, on PlayStation 4, we're able to turn that dial to 8, but on uh, Neo we're going to be able to turn that dial to 11. Yeah. Right. And on the next generation, we can turn that dial to 15. Right. So, so you're building on something that you are trying to look at and you go, how do we show how to take advantage of that new hardware and what can we do in our game so that if that new hardware comes out before or after we do, is there ways that we can update and dial some of the switches so that if you buy that new hardware and you buy our game, you'll get something more special out of it? Yeah. Right. So this is we're going to see a lot of developers having to think more like this to see uh, uh, why if you bought a higher power system that it's actually going to deliver you a higher powered game, even though that game runs on a on a lesser iPhone. Do you think this we talked about being the norm? Do you think after, let's say, Neo comes out early next year, do you think the next step is, well, now we're going to go to a PlayStation 5, or do you think it's just going to continue to be, and now here's the next version of PlayStation 4? Do you think this is going to be something that eventually they're going to have to take the next step and really modernize a different way, or can we continue down this trend where we just keep iterating every three, four years? Well, it'll be faster than that. It'll probably be every six months or so. Really? You think so? At least for headsets, yeah. Okay. Wow. And that's not based, again, it's not based on insider information. Yeah, no, it's absolutely. Based on, 
you know, it's based on the cell phone model. So how often is it that a new iPhone comes out? Every year? Every Yeah, like every year. How often is it a new Android comes out? That's like every six, eight months or something like exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. So some of them will take a year, which will probably be the consoles, and then some of them will take six months, which will probably be PC-based. Man. I mean, yeah, that's it's just such a drastic – again, we have been kind of mentally trained in that way to understand how phones work, but with just how consoles have been, I – It'll be interesting to see how that response happens at the start. Are people going to push back and say, I just bought this thing? Or are they going to be like, well, I want, you know, I want the, the new thing. That's the history of computing. Yeah. Right? Everyone, I mean, everyone used to tell me, I don't want to buy a new computer because eventually it'll be obsolete. I'm like, you think, you think what you got now isn't going to be obsolete in a couple of years? This is, you know, they've got us, right? <laughs> that's Cap- the thing. Capitalism. Yeah, they do have us. And Moore's Law is like, if you want more power, you got to upgrade. And, and that's just the, a way of things, you know. We don't like it. I'm holding on my iPhone 5. You know, maybe I'll hold on to it till till they either deny the ability to, uh, you know, they did this to me. I think on the iPhone 3, I eventually had to get a new phone because certain software wouldn't run on it anymore. The new OS wouldn't run on that old old <laughs> version. You know, oh, kill me, you know. But uh, yeah, it's going this way, and it's it kind of has to. Well, it, it does have to to a certain extent, but also you think about like just right before the PS4 and Xbox One came out, there were so many people who were questioning the desire for a new console in general, and now it seems like, like you said, we're going to have more consistent iteration on the console. Do, do you think? And I think let's just also note, I think PS4 was the fastest trajectory of them selling a console. Oh yeah, it blew up. Yeah, like in, but, in you ways know, that I, no one could have really predicted. And when I watch those games and when I watch the policies and then, you know, like look at now, you know, you just said uh, at E3 earlier you had mentioned at E3 we were looking at all AAA and not so much indie games. Yeah. Well, because now what are they doing? They're going to be pushing. So the indie battle has kind of been won. You know, indies carved out their space where they can have uh, uh, basically democratic terms, you know, Mm -hmm. equal terms to be able to bring games directly to their audience using networks from, that are built by consoles. I know you can't say too much more about Soulstorm, not to change gears too much from yeah. VR, but when when do you think we can expect more on that? Because again, it's it's really exciting well, uh, to hear you talk about this game in the way that you have, because you seem to be, you know, when you're enthusiastic about something, that's always great to hear, and I'm happy that it's not this, this nine-month sprint where people are kind of crunching to a point where you're not getting the result you want. It seems like, like you said, you're at a great place. So, yeah, so, so this year we're gonna have, this time we'll have a 12 months sprint. <laughs> exactly, it's way better. But, but, I mean, what, what's, but kind of, what's fully, the feeling on when we're gonna see more? Uh, within six months, we'll, ha- we'll ha- we should have a pretty significant announcement, right? So before, uh, uh, let's say in the fall, you know, and uh, in the fall we'll have an announcement, and then we'll be showing where we're at. And I think we're ahead of where most people think we would be. I mean, we were at E3 and we're showing partners, you know, we're showing uh, when I say partners, I mean network partners, you know, Um, uh, we're showing, uh, you know, Asian territories, European territories, uh, different different uh, console makers, you know, and all of them are like, you're way ahead of where we we thought you would be, you know, like that's a great thing to hear. Like, holy shit. Yeah. And we're like great you really feel like holy shit they're like yeah holy shit and we're like okay great you know then we're on the right track um but we are further ahead we are on uh, way more stable technology uh we we did you know we've learned a lot in 20 plus years of making games right so we we we've learned a lot and even though we're switching studios we went from jaw in uh uk you know 
bless them. Uh, we had, you know, we we helped uh, finance the studio to get to get through through making games with us, you know, to become what they are. Um, but we really we had such a mountain to haul on this one that we had to bring it closer to home. So we're working with Freema in Quebec City. Yeah. Uh, they're excited to work with us, and uh, they're doing a great job. Uh, there's a lot of learning there, but we're able to bring a lot of knowledge to to sort of, uh, you know, mutually get what we each want, and everyone wants to evolve themselves. So that's really synergistic, and uh, you know, we so we have a really ambitious. Uh, we want we we feel like we need to be out in 2017. We can't let that go into 2018. This, yeah. this is too long. So we need to make that happen. We've got an ambitious, ambitious target, but on the code base, on a game design level base, on the story base, uh, you know, we're excited about what's there. And so while it's inspired, you know, Soulstorm Brew is a key. That's why this one's called Soulstorm. It's a yeah. key to the inspiration, but it's an all new game. And uh, it's, it's an odd world in a way we haven't quite played before, but, yeah. but it builds on exactly what we played in new and tasty meaning you know it's the tried and true platformer uh it does some things but we're doing more dynamic emergent stuff that gives it a lot more ways to play we're stressing more of uh how abe wants you to play uh for oddworld fans it's like abe wants you to get through this experience without killing anyone yeah not even the bad guys right and then we're going to give you the ability to kill everyone (laughs) <laughs> so we have a whole gauntlet in between of possibilities, you know, and uh, and different ones way heavier on the soul. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, it sounds great. Again, this, it's just it's exciting to hear something like this new is coming from you guys. Uh, oh, l- last important question. Yes. Uh, are you still doing a lot of voice work for the game? Oh, absolutely. You know, that's our model. I mean, not me doing voices, but trying to get, you know, I'm doing voices. Michael Bross is doing voices. Uh some we'll see how many other people are doing voices there's some youtubers doing voices oh man uh, so some you know fans that are like we offered them the ability to get in there and and have some fun with us we did that last time with the audience itself it just it was we had people fans you know supply voices and then we went through it all but it was such a, a hard process just just vetting you know listening managing that hundreds and hundreds of submissions uh Managing it is just, just like, man, it's just too much. You know, yeah. it was too much work for us. But uh, it was fun to see the fans participate. They got in the game. They got uh, free games out of it, you know. Um, but I always looked at it like Jim Henson, you know, which is all those voices in the Muppets. Mm-hmm. They were the puppeteers. Yeah. So if you were going to be the – essentially, if you were going to be the animator, you had to do the voice. So being a puppeteer meant more than just operating the the, the action. You had to actually – play out the character yeah you had to be that character as well as you know actually animate and do it you're kind of doing the entire thing for it exactly and so you know oddwell was kind of very much inspired by jim henson uh and other others but uh mel blank you know and i was like well you know they, they didn't go around and hire brad pitt to do the voice you know <laughs> when i when i watch brad pitt doing an animated movie it just doesn't resonate for me you know bruce willis being a raccoon i hear bruce willis that's I'm, that's I a huge issue it's like oh no you are jack black you're not some i don't yeah. know guinea pig in this movie like it doesn't yeah. work yeah you know pixar does it better because uh you know, I look at like, or South Park even does it better. You know, I remember watching a South Park episode one time, and in the episode there was a dog, and a dog uh, occasionally went woof, woof, <laughs> woof, right. And then you get to the end, and you read the credits. It's uh, 
It's uh, who's the biggest movie star today? Oh jeez, uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. No, is no, the one who with. came from the Wayne, the one who came from uh, the the medical show on TV. Um, oh God, Jasmine, help me out here. Who's the who's the came from medical TV series and then became from George Clooney? Oh jeez, okay, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry to bother you. I keep bothering Jasmine. <laughs> I, I like her. it. But uh, so he, he, you know, as you read the clutter, the, the wolf was brought to you by George Clooney. You know, woof, woof. <laughs> I mean, that's like I love shit. Like that's that. amazing. It, it, Looney Tunes, you know, Mel Blanc was like mind blowing voice artist. He, he could do anything. You know, he did Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny and Yosemite Sam. All those were one guy. Right. Amazing stuff. Uh, and then uh, I watched like, you know, DreamWorks start making animated movies. Uh, well, let me say, you know, so Pixar, you still have these characters that would come from the animation group. I think uh, uh, his name's slipping me right now. Gee, what a surprise. But uh, <laughs> he, he did like, I'm watching you. And Mark Silvestri. And he was, you know, an animator. Right. And he's doing one of the coolest voices in the movie. I'm watching you. You know that. Uh, yeah. Like, and sometimes you'll find that talent within instead of reaching for someone who's known. Yeah. And uh, and even, you know, if you go with someone like if I was going with someone who's known, I'd be like, look, if it's not a character, if it's you now, I'll do you as a character. Yeah. You got to give me a character uh, like Mel Blanc or something like that, you know, and to which Brown, Brad Pitt would say piss off into which i'd say i can't afford you anyway so you know what's the point but um but yeah so we like to try and have fun with the voices we oftentimes get into the part of the reason is if you deal with the scripts you're all doing predictive assumptions you predict that the script is right but when you actually play the game it might not it might have to change then you got to go back to the agencies in hollywood and then you got to go back to sag now you're trying to get that actor but he's on a set somewhere so in order to have him re-record this vice voice you're now paying five times as much you know it's just a hollywood inflation game right yeah and we were like no we we know we're going to change the script tons of times to delivery because we're making games man there's all kinds of surprises some of them good a lot of them not so good and so we need to adapt and if we're staying locked to a script that we can't change it's going to really up the budget if we do uh we're going to be in trouble so let's try to avoid that model so as odd will we've never signed on and use SAG, SAG actors. We've only used people that were either fans. Uh, sometimes those fans were celebrities, but they did it for free. Right? The last game had a few different celebrities in there, uh, actors and musicians, and they love our, our games. And so they were willing to do it. And we're like, this, this is kind of our model. You know, we're not we're not cheap. I mean, we're kind of doing it cheap, but we kind of are cheap because that's all we got. You know, uh, and what you find is that people want to participate. And if we can do that again and again, you know, that's the model. And that way, we, when we go into the sound booth, we go, hmm, you know, I'm talking to Michael Bross, right? He's doing the, the uh, audio again. He did the audio on, mm. on Munch's Odyssey. He wrapped it up, and then he did Stranger from beginning to end. Uh, he helped deliver New and Tasty's audio. And on this one, he's handling the whole thing. But he does a lot of voices. So he does town folks in Stranger. He does uh, Mudakins. And he's just he's great with voices. So he and I will get in there. I'll, we'll write something and then we're doing it in the booth. And it's just not funny. So we just start ad libbing until we get something that's funny. Yeah. And we can do that. And then we come back six months later. We go, oh, shit. Story changed. And this changed to make this better. We got to get back in the booth, dude. You know, and then we and just, you have that freedom. You, we you have, don't have to freedom. go call Brad Pitt again and be like, hey, I need to pay you double now because we need to change this. Exactly. And we don't have any illusions as to how complicated it is. 
but we've tried to uh, forsake the complications for sake of uh, in exchange for having flexibility and be able to, being able to tune and adapt to the end because yeah. it is a real fuzzy science you know you show me a game that is designed to be a hit from paper and I'll show you a lie yeah right and- meaning meaning a, a great game is partially discovered along the way and it adapts and we feel all kinds of games that this somehow the heart and soul is just missing something that just doesn't jive. And a lot of times they just executed on what the plan was, but they didn't pivot. They didn't adapt. They didn't change. They didn't go, you know, it's just not working. Right. If you watch, uh, the outtakes to 40, 40 year old version, mm. what they did was they shot the script. It was like the first thing they shot. And then they just said, just do it over and over and over till we're laughing. Right. Yeah. And so if you remember the scene where they're on the couch playing and like, uh, you know, uh, you know how I know you're gay. Like they were doing yep. all these jokes on each other. That was all improv. They just came. The guy, the director was smart enough. He's like, these guys are hilarious, man. Let's just put them on a the couch. They're gamers. And most of the scenes were done this way. They'd shoot the script and then they'd shoot variations based on actors impulses being on the scene and based on the sets reactions. Are we all laughing? If you've watched comedy writers uh, for television series, you know, it's like 12 writers in a room. There's not one writer. There's like 12 writers in the room, particularly comedy. Mm-hmm. And these guys have to – they just batting around, batting around, throwing out ideas until the whole room starts laughing. They go, that's it. We're going with that one. Next. Yeah. That's right? probably where most great humor moments from movies, from television shows come from is that moment where they're going back and forth. They're you know moving around. They say, oh, that's what's funny. That's what makes us all laugh here, and that was not even remotely close to what the script said. Exactly. And that's like an emergence, right? That's an emergent thing. And it's unpredictable. But what happens is you get the chemistry in the room and you start learning and then you start, it starts educating and you find greater possibilities. You know, it's not like someone goes, hey, man, I've been working on this joke for two and a half years. Let me read it for you. You know, chances are that joke sucks. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, there you go. Yeah. Uh, Lauren, I could probably talk to you for like four hours, like every month, just to get an update on the industry <laughs> and everything. But I don't want to keep you any longer. Uh, again, I'm looking forward to hearing more about Soulstorm. It just sounds really exciting. And I'm super happy that your team is so kind of energized by it. So again, you said, was it six months we'll hear more about it? Uh, within. Within six months. All yeah. right. In the uh, fall, we'll have, we'll have announcements and we'll have uh, footage and we'll have this stuff. All right. I would love to have you on again at some point, either when it releases, before it releases, to continue to talk about it. Because, again, it's it's a super fun thing to talk about. Hey, my pleasure. It's always fun being on, Josiah. Absolutely. Uh, thanks again. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.